something green, maybe some kale, and um, some tofu with pesto. Oh, that's awesome. You sound so yeah. healthy. I had like five pieces of bacon. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. <laughs> One pig, please. With the Rocky Mountain Institute, and he was raving about Janine Benyus's book. So, of course, then I had to go read her book, um, and it changed my life. Kind of get to this point where you're like, oh man, what are we doing? It was like one of those things where, you know, you, you hear somebody talk, but it feels like you're talking. You start to realize, well, there are ways to be on this planet and to be a person and to engage the natural world in a way that's not just extractive. Welcome to Life Centered, a podcast about how looking to the natural world is impacting technology, society, and how we live our lives. In this, our first episode, Amelia Tracy and I, Tim McGee, stretch our podcasting muzzles as we explore our own introductions to the field of biomimicry, geek out about bubbles, farming the ocean, and the intelligence of plants. Enjoy. I discovered biomimicry a couple of years ago um, because I was looking for the next iteration of my career, and I have always worked in the kind of environmental sustainability space, and I just happened to um, read Reinventing Fire by Amory Levins, who's with the Rocky Mountain Institute, and he was raving about Janine Benyus's book. So, of course, then I had to go read her book, um, and it changed my life. It was like one of those things where, you know, you, you hear somebody talk, but it feels like you're talking. You know, it's that mm. kind of like very instinctual thing. Mm -hmm. So I learned about what she was up to a couple of years ago, but I really didn't act on it because I, I felt like it was too weird and new and different. Um, so I, I started to work for a solar developer that I had a relationship with already. Um, but in that time, I've just really, it's been nudging at me. So what I'm doing now is working toward getting some legs under me and starting a business that is that is at the intersection of bringing uh, biomimicry into the built environment through real estate development and public art projects as a platform or as a, a medium for working with women to help them get involved in um, substantial uh, projects and conversations around climate change, because I think that the two things need to happen together. So um, so that's why I'm involved with biomimicry, and I'm excited to hear about yours. Oh, that's, that's great. Well, when you first started, I, I thought you said a couple of beers ago, and I was wondering <laughs> how much, you know. Just some, some gluten-free stuff, you some know. Just some, yeah, <laughs> a couple of beers ago. It's... Really? It's been a total wild ride. Yeah, 20 minutes, really. But <laughs> No, that's good. It's interesting to hear about Amory Lovins and, and Janine Benyus and the book and sort of re revelations. It reminded me of, actually, there were a, a couple of moments in in my sort of biology career that clicked for me where biomimicry had meaning. And mm -hmm. one was one was I was in undergraduate work doing at this uh, doing field studies in Australia at one moment they kind of 
they talk about all the things that are happening, climate change and and pollution and deforestation and loss of biodiversity. And you kind of get to this point where you're like, oh, man, what are we doing? And I remember being in the rainforest and you're sitting there and looking around and you just start to see, well, this is a system that's figured out how to be sustainable, how to stay here for thousands, millions of years. And hmm. and the one that I was in was actually where people had been there for at least 60,000 years. And so you, you start to realize, well, there are ways to be on this planet and to be a person and to engage the natural world in a way that's not just extractive. And so for me, that was a, that, that, that happened a long time ago, long before I even um, got to know um, what biomimicry was as a word or mechanine or work in this field as I had that sort of experience as a biologist. And then it wasn't for another like, yeah, it just sat with me for a while too until I think it was about four or five years later, I was in the lab and I was reading this article about this guy named Dan Morse and he was holding up this sea sponge but the sea sponge, he was holding up the skeleton. And the skeleton of this sea sponge called the Venus flower basket is made out of glass. Have you ever seen one of those? Not in person, no. Yeah, they're amazing. I mean, they, they can be like, you know, as big as your hand or they can be quite large. Mm. And the, the fibers are made out of, I mean, they're glass fibers. They're like optical fibers. You can shine a light and it comes out the other end. <sighs> and you can wrap them around your hand, like coil them and they won't break. So there's wow. a super tough glass and it just kind of just melted my brain a little bit. And, <laughs> and it had me thinking, well, if nature can do that, why can't, why can't we do that? Like making that kind of high performance material out of seawater, you know, like, right. why can't we do that? So that's when I decided to go to grad school and learn, ask the question, how does nature make materials? Mm-hmm. And then from there, I went on to figure to, that inspired me because there are so many interesting things that the natural world does to make these materials that I just was brimming with naive possibilities in some ways and wanted to go share it with the world. So um, eventually found my way to consulting uh, with Janine's group, um, doing just that, which, which, which was an amazing experience. What was your grad school? What were you doing in grad school that allowed you to do that, to study how nature makes materials? Yeah, there's this uh, school, uh, the University of California, Santa Barbara, has a has a school called the Biomolecular Science and Engineering Program. Mm. And uh, it's a lot of words, but really what you're doing is you're looking at, you know, the molecular way that natural systems work. And my background had been in some genetics and in ecology and actually in astronomy. But I'd really been looking at, you know, how can we apply computers and systems to to natural systems and what can we learn and how can we map them and all these things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so for me, the scale didn't really matter. It could be looking at stars. It could be looking at an ecosystem or it could be looking at a system of genes. But my favorite thing turned out to be proteins. I love how proteins assemble and work together and form shapes and do make up everything in the world that we touch basically out of just these 21 amino acids. So Mm. for me, proteins really were my thing uh, for a while there and got very excited about that and then wanted to share that with the world. Mm. What was your, what was your like thesis? Did you have a thesis or some kind of like 
grad school yeah. paper that you had to write? Yeah, I ended up doing a master's degree. My um, I studied two different things, and then I wrote about a third. So I studied the muscle bisis on um, the marine muscles, the blue muscles, the edulis mm-hmm. that, that live on the coast. You know, the ocean comes in, and they stay there. And they they make this thread, and it has these amazing properties. And what I was really curious about was the way that that thread is made. Um, it's in like a pouch inside the animal, but it's not a thread. It's it's a liquid. And then mm. the muscle um, extrudes it into a tube that it makes, and then it solidifies. But it doesn't solidify as a you know, as a as a single piece, it actually one end of it is very stiff and the other end is very floppy, flexible. Wow. And so that's weird that it could do that. And it turns out it, it, it changes the amount of proteins that are on each side of that material and it actually can align the proteins. They can they they can so like order themselves so it self assembles in a way to create this performance. And so for me I was curious about that transition and 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 what that meant and if we could create materials that would have similar properties in that transition state. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was one thing I studied. And then another thing I studied was I went and studied the the glass skeletons. And they're, they're actually made by a protein called silicotine that it grabs precursor silica oxide mole- molecules and binds them together to form this sort of amorphous class. Mm -hmm. And what's cool about that is I was extracting that protein and then putting different kinds of metals on it, like titanium dioxide, with the hopes that I could get better crystal formation around dyes to make better solar cells. So Ah. that was the... That was the early research there. I mean, that was a long time ago at this point. So uh, they've advanced far beyond that. But but those are the two things I studied. And then I wrote up a paper around sort of a theoretical biology thing around squid reflective proteins. So there are these squid in Hawaii called bobtail squid. Mm -hmm. And what's kind of amazing about them is they come out at night and the moonlight shines above them. But they have a bioluminescent bacteria in a mm-hmm. special pouch that they will they will open up the lens on the bottom of them to cancel out their own shadow. So predators below uh. can't see them, so they don't have a shadow. So they just look like, you know, they just look like the moonlight. Um, wow. So so I was. I, what's weird about them is they have like this reflective protein which most animals use, um, they don't have a protein that's reflective. And so this was a unique protein structure that could reflect light and I think can change the kind of light it reflects. That's a theory I have anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if they've proved that yet or not, but that's um, that, that that's what my master's thesis was looking at, was the the, the potential for a reflective protein. That's so interesting. <clears throat> It's so interesting. And I I always wonder when I hear things like that, you know, what the relationship with the moon is, right? Like, obviously, it's a a survival mechanism that the squid has adopted over time or adapted into over time um, to deal with this very bright light source above it. But, but for me, it's like there's a bigger story about this relationship that, that the squid has with a specific time of the month, 
Mm. you know, like mm-hmm. in a very specific, right? Like, because if you, I don't know, for me, I, I, and I'm very new to learning about Judaism, but thinking about like how Judaism holds <clears throat> time as sacred, right? Like how the, how the relationship with time, a very specific time that, that, you know, our ancestors have held as sacred, holding that time, um, you know, how that might be analogous to the squid, you know, and its evolution and that story, you know, and like thinking about it in, in sort of metaphysical or um, mystical, you know, contexts. Um, well, and cultural context. I, you know, for me, this is one of the fun things about biomimicry is that mm-hmm. it does transcend this geeky biology all the way to cultural understanding. So one of the things that I've been fascinated with, and I can't remember the name of the book. I think it's called Dancing Through Time. Quick fact check. The book is actually called The Dance of Life, The Other Dimension of Time by Edward T. Hall. It is one of my favorite books of all time, and I highly recommend it. There is a YouTube video called Dancing Through Time, which is also very good, and I recommend that as well. I will put links to both in the show notes. Thank you. Experience time. And as a biologist, you know, you'd, you'd start to wonder about the moon, the moonlight, the weather. How responsive is this bobtail squid to these different events? And you'd assume it would be very tied in to lunar cycles. And I don't know if any ecologist has ever looked at that. But that would be an amazing sort of PhD thing to do. Um, <laughs> but also, you know, one of my favorite things about time is that it's so arbitrary for how we set it so you know right now we're in spring up here in the northern hemisphere Mm. and in seattle like i was just reading this thing how spring in seattle it's one of the longest springs it basically starts in february and ends in june so (laughs) slow eking spring whereas out where you are you know it's you know you have a crowd yes it's it's not even there yet and then it'll happen and then done Right, right. Yeah, yeah. And then in some places, you know, it's like, I I hate to say it because I'm not from the desert. So I don't have the privilege of really experiencing the seasons as much there. But it's like, I think the the desert, you know, also has that like very explosive spring that just dies off really quickly. Oh, yeah, that I I lived in Montana for like a year and a half. And my one spring there was um, ridiculous because it was only one week long. It was just like, (laughs) it's snow and minus 10 degrees. And then it's you know, spring, it's 70s and nice, and then it's 90. So you just, I know, everything just explodes. Yeah, it's crazy. Uh, my quote of the week to get to that point. Uh, <laughs> so this week's quote is one that I think encapsulates a lot of what I've been trying to do and, and helps explain some things. It's from Buckminster Fuller. And it's, I'm not trying to imitate nature. I'm trying to find the pencil she is using. Mm. And I always thought that was nice because it, it it gets to this idea that, that a lot of biomimicry, the word itself can be confusing sometimes because uh, people are uh, take the mimic word very literally. But the idea is mm-hmm. to look to the natural world, to understand it, to understand these patterns, just like this idea with squid and time, or to understand... Um, you know, the engineering principles behind the way protein reflects light. And then maybe we don't even use it to reflect light. Maybe we use it to capture light, or maybe we use it to do something totally different. I don't know, but just better understanding of the natural world. 
in order to to you know use that as as inspiration and use that as tools in in the kinds of technologies that we make yeah and i think i would take it one step further you know which is to say um that i believe that human beings have the capacity to live on earth without being destructive right like we know that we have the ability to be that way um and so it's you know it's both looking at other organisms and other systems and species and you know looking at kind of the external world from our species and figuring out how they're doing what they're doing but also looking back into ourselves and seeing how those patterns from the external natural world um are already existing in our species right and like how we can retool what we have like or remember what it is that we have that's intrinsic to to our being here that we've kind of forgotten how to use or misallocated Mm. you know Mm -hmm. um because i think it's less creationary or you know it's it's less um like giving birth to something new um than it is you know, peeling off all of the stuff that we built because of fear and anxiety about dying off, mm. <laughs> you know, and, and going back to basics around like what we know works and, and using the ingenuity and the innovation that we have, right? Because we're in this incredible time where we actually don't need to have this extractive lifestyle anymore, right? Like we don't need offices. We don't need all these things anymore. Um you know and that's the you know i think a lot of people have been uh using the uh, you know population as something that's scary like a population boom and there's too many people and all that idea yeah and i yeah. actually don't don't necessarily buy into that um, i don't either no. because i because i think yeah exactly what you're saying like we it's up to us to choose how we want to live and we don't need to be extractive or destructive we can be regenerative we can be um uh, and 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 there's evidence for this all throughout the natural world you know like you look at you look at ants right arguably right. arguably ants as a big group outweigh humans on earth in terms of weight right exactly uh, and you know and yet they are intrinsic to all the ecosystems of earth and so if you removed them those e- ecosystems would dramatically change or collapse and so uh, uh i feel like we have a similar capacity and and i and there is evidence for that too i mean when i started talking about the australia uh bit that where we were was on the edge of a rainforest and the other side of it was the was the bush and the aboriginal people there for sixty thousand years that we that we have pollen records and um, some other evidence for would burn that forest Mm. and so it became the species there are depend on that burning cycle and depend on that that sort of buffer zone where where people have thrived as well and so it became this this ecosystem that people and animals all thrived in together Mm. and and for me that 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 i think you know coming back full circle that was one of the insights that, that yeah has spurred me on yeah yeah and and also um you know for this for me personally this work has been about 
figuring out where that knowledge is and where that intelligence is um, in my own family lineage. Um, because I, um, I have the privilege of being from a family of like old school New Englanders, like Mainers that basically helped settle here mm-hmm. originally, you know? Um, so there is a, um, generational knowledge around how to live in the place that I, I currently live from hundreds of years ago that speaks to that, right? Like that speaks to listening to what the natural world is saying and responding to it as a species that is um, not, not um, supreme or, or overwhelming, you know, it's natural environment. So one of the things that I've um, started to do and started to plan is to put together some kind of a, like an online website that can be a database for my family um, with um, video, probably like vlogs of going back to that home space, right? Like the homestead that um, my ancestors come from up in Northern Maine and having it be like kind of a, an interview or maybe a documentary of the oldest people in my family that are from that place up there. Like we're going to take a trip this year um, and just talking about how they know how to live on the land, how they know how the land, how, what the land needs. And I think one of the big pieces is really obvious, but we don't really think about is just the general connectedness that, that human beings had with the land hundreds of years ago, right? Because they didn't engineer themselves away from it. So, you know, the kind of the vulnerability of different, you know, seasons and temperatures and weather conditions, um, you know, and then also the fact that you need the, you need the stream over there to irrigate your crops and you also need it to, for drinking water, right? Like you're so integrated, um, or the, or the lifestyles were so many hundreds of years ago. Um, it's true. Yeah, I'm with you. I feel like, um. That's amazing, by the way. That that that's a great project. Um, the f- for for me, one of the things that I found having moved around a lot in the last decade or so, um, I don't feel at home until I've gotten out and at least learned a little bit more about the natural world where I am. And I mm. that might come from you know being an ecologist, but I, I also find even more so this idea of biomimicry of looking to nature and sort of valuing it creates a, you kind of get addicted to it in a, in a weird way. <laughs> like you, you kind of, you, you realize if that you, you feel better when you've spent time and gone out and reflected in the woods or, you know, lots of cultures around the world have this idea of like bathing in the woods. Like in, in Japan, you can go, you go to take a forest walk and you bathe in the forest right Um, and and i feel like i do since i started practicing biomimicry um that's become an important part of just feeling healthy Mm. is is getting out and reconnecting in and i never felt that before because i didn't know it was missing um and then after i started doing it and you stop for a while um i miss it and so mm-hmm. but I also miss the the that I don't know the land as well. So when I moved to New England, I went out and took some, you know, natural history cl- classes, did, did did some walks and then I felt much better cuz I'd go out and I'd know a little bit more about the land, a little bit know about how to live there or how to be part of it in a mm-hmm. way that 
it wasn't immediate when I just, you know, was like an alien put out there. And I think that's useful because you're right. I think most of us, and I am included in this for sure, started life either in suburbia or in an urban set, setting and haven't had that opportunity to really be exposed to a natural setting and the knowledge or be with a culture or people who um, know how to interact with that space. For sure. Yeah. And for me, it's like the reason why I'm do why I'm interested in bringing biomimicry and ecosystem services into urban environments um, is because of the trend that we're, you know, we're expecting, which is that, that whatever happens with the population will happen, but we're expecting that the majority of people will move into urban environments for economic reasons, right? And so once we start removing ourselves from access to the natural environment, um, we really lose our ability to, to do that reconnecting, right? To do that, um, that quieting down of our nervous system and really allowing our bodies to feel rooted in the place that we are. Um, so yeah, I think it's really awesome to hear that, that that's kind of become an addiction because <laughs> it's like the best addiction you could, you could possibly develop. <laughs> it's one of my few healthy vices, right? I've got to get out and take a walk in the woods. Tell me more about the natural history classes that you took and where they were and what they were up to, because I think that that, um, that's something that should be available to everybody free of cost all the time. Yeah. My, my teacher was Ted and Ted is at the Hitchcock center and they are great. They are fabulous. They're actually building a new building, uh, right now at Hampshire college, which is out there. And, um, it's going to be a living building challenge. Building. I know it's so exciting. Yeah, so they're they're excited about that, and 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 Ted will get to work out of there, and um, and he was you know I took this course and and was really excited because it's all it was also fun because it was other people. I was probably the youngest person in the group. It tended to be more retired people. Uh, probably part of it was just the time of day, and you know I feel like maybe young people have other things going on all the time. But, <laughs> I, but for some reason it was a great group and we had a lot of fun. Just, um, he would take us out. We would do marshes. We went and did river areas, riparian. We went up and did a mountains and, the you know, le learned the different flowers that some of the different plants and trees, um, the ferns were his specialty. And so mm -hmm. I learned a lot, not, you know, uh, not from a biomimicry perspective, but just from a reconnecting and understanding the place. And that gave yeah. me such a confidence to be out there and to then go explore the biomimicry in new ways to, to look deeper at, you know, like these plant, these ferns that are out there and ask like, why are they ferns on top of that rock where there's no water? Like how do they survive with no water? And it turns out that those are the types of ferns that people have used to, they have this sugar called trehalose, which allows um, cells to dry out. And so biologists and companies are using that to dry out vaccines. So you don't have to um, freeze them or, or, or you don't have to keep them cold. That And so now they can last for months or years at room temperature rather than just like a couple hours. So they can ship wow. them all over the world for free for, you know, lower money. So it's a, it's changed the way that molecular biology can work and it's changed the way that we can distribute like proteins and viruses and things or, or, or antibodies and all kinds of medicines to people. 
I've heard about this. Do you know if it's actually being deployed widely or if it's too mm-hmm. too early? No, it's it's been out for several years. Um, the company name keeps changing, so I don't know it off the top of my head. But the um, uh, but yeah, they're 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 out there and they're doing stuff. And there's even it's even been adopted by I think Stanford's biomolecular lab or something like that. Um, switched from cold storage, which requires lots of energy, to mm. shelf storage with Trehalose. So they know that's so awesome. Yeah, so it's a huge energy saving. Like talk about a sustainability win. Um, you know, that's, that's sustainability win for forever, for as long as you're doing molecular biology. So it's great. Right. Yeah. yeah. Kundalini yoga, it's like the yoga of the aliens, I say, because it's just super bizarre and weird, but I love it because it's heavy on meditation. And through that world, I was exposed to something about new discoveries in bubbles last week. Uh And I want to hear what you know about it because I think you're as tuned in as this yogi (laughs) that told me something about it. (laughs) Bubbles. Yeah. I I got really excited about bubbles a couple of weeks ago. Um, It started with, have you ever seen those photos or videos of penguins like underwater swimming? And they, 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 they move fast, right? They're super quick. But they leave these trails of bubbles everywhere they go, like, like these just like jet streams. Like little clouds, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. And then when they, like, when they get ready to get out of, out, out of the water, to fly out of the water onto the ice shelf, they, um, I mean, they're going fast, and they just release a huge cloud of, of bubbles. And it turns out these bubbles are really useful and they're intentional and the penguins can control how much how many bubbles they release and the bubbles um, reduce the friction of the water on Mm. over their bodies and they can move 50 percent faster with this bubble net this bubble capability and so to me i was like that's awesome that's amazing. And then I learned, I went and found out that there are now some companies that are making um, like shipping containers that where they will have bubbles underneath to reduce the friction to save on fuel costs. And I was like, that's yeah, so awesome. that's a direct biomimicry application. That's great. But what else does nature do with bubbles? So I started to go look and and it's it's all these amazing organisms. So there's one called, I think it's called the diving bell spider. Have you ever seen this? Mm-mm, no. So this guy's a, it's a spider that can live underwater, and it what it does is it weaves a web underwater, and then it it brings bubbles down and traps bubbles under its web to make like an air pocket bubble tank basically that it can go take breaths from and then go hunting underwater for different prey and come back. Wow. It doesn't need to come back above water. Um, so that was an interesting one, and I. There was a whole a whole bunch of these that I was trying to think of all the different ways that nature uses bubbles from do you know have you ever have you ever seen a diatom? Yeah. Microscope. Mm-hmm. Like they have that intricate structure and it's sort of a lightweight kind of design because they're they mm-hmm. float, but they're made out of they're made again, it's they're made out of glass. But what mm-hmm. they the way that they do that, we think, is they they, they have a bunch of bubbles. And where the bubbles meet, they grow glass. 
And so they create this kind of like intricate glass structure using this sort of membrane bubble technology. Um, So it's sort of the opposite of a form, like creating a form to mm -hmm. make, make the shape of whatever object you're looking to make. It's the, the, you know, the negative space is the form. Yeah. It's like, where do these meet? And that's Mm -hmm. the, that's the form. Um, interesting which was yeah it was just pretty cool and then so i was looking at other bubble things and there were of course the humpback whales and the bubble nets which Mm -hmm. which my daughter and reminded me of because she saw it in one of the shows she was watching on tv and (laughs) it's just this you know that they i mean it's amazing it's incredible that the whales can do this they they make this they blow bubbles of the right size and shape and consistency and enough of them to confuse the fish and so they actually act as a as both a um, visual as well as an audible and sensory net mm. so that the fish don't think they can swim through it and so they call collect in the middle and then the whales come up and eat you know the condensed ball of fish i know it's so amazing so i think a lot of finned Marine life does that, right? Like uh, maybe maybe not a lot, but I think I heard that the the dolphins do that too. Do they? I'm, dolphins do all crazy stuff with bubbles, and I, you know, I've just seen the videos of like dolphins where they'll blow a bubble and then they'll like use their sonar to like form the bubble to do different things, and I think that's crazy. Yeah, dolphins are crazy. Wow. But wow. There was this. Um, you know, we're, we are now learning how to, speaking of dolphins and sound and bubbles, we are learning how to shape bubbles. So there's this technology now that you can put on like, um, water faucets that it's an ultrasound. And what it'll do is it'll create these nano bubbles that vibrate and they vibrate really fast. And because they vibrate really, really fast, they work themselves into like grooves and then they also loosen up dirt. And so it's a way of cleaning without using detergents and without, um, so you can, you can clean things that are actually really hard, hard to clean with these sort of nano ultrasound bubbles. So it's like power washing, except for just crafting bubbles of specific size with specific very vibration. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's, are these things that get attached to, like, is it, would it be for an attachment to a fixture, like a plumbing fixture in your house to clean the pipes of your house? I just don't understand what they would be cleaning. No, like like your clothes. Oh, So like, okay. Like you could like put it on your faucet and like put it over your clothes and just clean your clothes. Because the water that comes out has those bubbles. You can't see them, but they're there. And they they eventually go away, right? That energy gets dissipated, but. Mm-hmm. And this is all in the lab right now. I don't think there's an actual product yet, but it's an interesting technology to think about how how nature how we use bubbles and how nature uses bubbles. And mm-hmm. I wouldn't be surprised to learn that dolphins use can create bubbles or that for example the what is it the pistol shrimp? So the pistol shrimp, if you know what they do, they they have these um or like they have these big like claw and the claw has this like hinge that moves really fast. And what it does is when it gets, it sees prey like a little fish or something swimming by, it'll, it'll snap its claw, but it doesn't, its claw doesn't necessarily hit 
the the fish what it does is it, it creates a cavitation bubble and that mm-hmm. bubble is formed and then collapses and it's the collapsing of that bubble it generates enough energy i think in the middle of that bubble it's like hotter than the sun what and then the the energy wave from that is what hits the fish and stuns the fish so that then it can go over and eat it um, wow so yeah so nature already does all these sort of nano bubble extreme like taking energy like physical energy and turning it into sort of this mechanical bubble energy that then is yeah propagated in a way that you want so it's really interesting to me how and I, I think this is true a lot of the time actually is we will think that we invented a technology like oh ultrasound bubbles that can do things for us and then we'll <laughs> go look at the natural world and be like oh hey dolphins were doing that and shrimp were doing that because we didn't even know you could do those things until we looked right uh, I, I think that happens a lot right and it's probably got to happen both ways i mean you would you could tell me more than i could just guess but you know but but that our consciousness of what's available to us has to happen both from us kind of creating a higher awareness of what's possible to 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 happen on earth but also from that reinforcement that it's happening in nature as well right like if we saw it in nature um, and experienced it in nature, we might not have the ability to translate that information back into a way that would be, you know, something meaningful for ourselves. And I think that we're, we're still, everything is still so nascent, like it's still so early in how we understand our context that, uh, that I think a lot of the, the raising our awareness of what's possible still has to be done, right? So like, even though we understand all of these amazing things that you're talking about, right? Like that's still just such a small fraction of what's going on, (laughs) you know? Mm -hmm. Um, It's, you know, so it's like, it has to happen both ways where we are like looking for this reinforce, this, you know, reinforcement that, that, that that so much more is possible than what we are creating right now. um, As well as, you know, confirming it um, for ourselves. Yeah, I think it's definitely both, uh, and it's. It, 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 I, I'm not sure which way is easier or harder. Um, I think when you see it in the natural world, and you say, "Hey, I see this," you sort of have to prove it. Mm. Uh, whereas if somebody invents a technology that is doing something, and then and then th- that they think's never been done before it's actually much easier than go look at nature and say like, Oh, actually. <laughs> so right. I, think, I think it, yeah, I think it, I mean, for better or worse, I think uh, just the way that I think we're set up right now and the way that science works is, is you have to prove that the nature is working, but if you have a technology that does it, then. Mm, that's yeah. The, the difference between like researching existing s- systems and structures versus just innovation and invention. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. So here's here's what I wanted to do with the the book. Mm-hmm. I was I, I I wanted to read it, but I haven't had a chance yet to um, to, to purchase it or to mm-hmm. listen to it. But I do want to do it before we meet. Before we talk about it, yeah. Yeah, okay. I think it might be nice 
if we, inter- we introduce the book and maybe if anybody's listening and they want to uh, listen to us then review it after they've read it uh, the book is called Linked do you know who it's by? It's by Albert Laszlo Barabasi. Okay. And I'll try. L- yeah. I'll put a link He's... in the show notes that we Cool. Share. Yeah. He's a professor at Northeastern and he directs the Center for Complex Network Research um, and is an associate member of the Center for Cancer Systems Biology at Dana Farber um, at Harvard and he lives in Boston. So. Nice. Well, that, let's absolutely. Um... Uh, let's do that and get the book. And maybe if we're lucky, we might be able to talk to him at some point, which would be fun. Yeah. I think that that would be amazing. Um, Peter and I, I've, so I've been trying to work with Peter a little bit. Peter Lawrence is the president of Biomimicry New England, um, about how the Biomimicry New England can kind of infuse itself with some more energy around biomimicry because it's such an exciting new feel the study and everybody that's involved in it is excited. You know, they just want to do more and be more involved and know what's going on and know everybody else that's involved. Um, so one of the things that we're, we're, we're looking at doing is putting together like a monthly speaker series of people who are um, involved in the biomimicry space publicly. So um, Jay Harmon from PAX is going to come in June to talk to the chapter um, about his sort of case study. Um, um, and then, you know, and then having people like, you know, Albert Barabasi from linked, right? Like having people come in and talk about their take on biomimicry from various different perspectives, um, mm-hmm. I think is going to be really exciting. So, well, that's really good, especially in new England, because, w- between all of the universities in the area and all of the people working on, the hundreds of aspects of biomimicry that you could there's there's people just stick in the woods there and i think the conversation uh, that's uh, needs to be um looked at from all these different angles so that's fantastic Mm -hmm. yeah yeah we've also got some really exciting other things cooking up for the chapter that um we'll be ready to reveal in the next couple weeks so well we'll keep talking about them yeah. <laughs> cool. All right. So we'll do the book review later. Um, yeah, we'll do the book review next time. So if you're listening, and, you, and you're listening in order of the of our sessions, then uh, I think we'll we'll do number two. Will be we'll have some book review. Cool. What about this farming of the sea thing that you're starting to see? Like, I don't remember the name of the guy who's down in Long Island yeah. where he, he got some grant funding because of the algae blooms down there from the state of Connecticut, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was the first of its kind that the state put the state put together an incentive program for people to go and do something in the water on Long Island Sound to deal with algae blooms. Mm-hmm. And he came up with this super simple netting structure, right, for mm-hmm. – um, to grow um, seaweed, basically seaweed and oysters and mussels and things like that. Um, is that where is that you got? Is it. that on yeah, your radar? Called, yeah, it's called Green Wave. Green waves. Green wave. And and yeah. what I loved about that and and so getting back to that idea of how do you live 
in a place how do you connect to a place if you don't if you don't know how to if you don't know how to like farm in it or don't know the organisms that are there or don't know how to you're not exposed to it i feel like the ocean is one of these places that's just a deep mystery because mm. we are everybody all humans are not native to the ocean and mm. and we are you know with the exception of maybe the culture of the hawaiians we're, we're very divorced from or, or or it feels like especially modern cult cultures are divorced from the ocean and that's i think that's a huge problem because the ocean's one of these things that keeps us alive it keeps the earth going it is um, one of the environments that is being most heavily impacted by climate change. Right. And so it, it's one of these things that I'm excited about is the, the, the idea that we're learning how to farm on the sea or they're all occasionally you have like people building like uh, cities that float on the ocean. And what always surprises me is that they're not engaged in a specific place in the ocean like they, they they don't take into context they just view the ocean as like one monolithic thing and they float <laughs> right. rather than like no we are a, a city that lives in the you know the coral seas of this place and we're adapted to living with the coral and the you know the environments that are there and you know like building in the context of the different oceans would be amazing to me and so this farming of the sea is what I see as just the beginning of this idea of us learning and building a culture of being part of the ocean mm. and how do we do that? And that's, there's this um, nonprofit um, up in British Columbia called Sea Legacy. And it's this photographer, um, Paul Nicklin is, is, is one of the leads. And he uh, takes these amazing um pictures of the ocean and of the animals that live on the edges of the ocean and the ecosystems that depend on those oceans and we uh, and how we're just learning the science behind it but he captures this sort of the, the intimate moments of the animals there that you wouldn't get to see that you wouldn't get to experience mm -hmm. and so for me the farming of the sea or that sort of reconnection piece um, is something that I'm I'm really interested in and, and, and curious about, you know, how to do it even in small ways. And, and lots of people around here that I know uh, have, uh, have, if, if you have a dock close to the water, you can put like a little basket in with some oysters and you can grow oysters, right? Mm, yeah. And, and oysters clean the ocean. They're, you know, they've got all these be be benefits and people are just starting, I think, to sort of take on this small farm or DIY mentality with the ocean and and i think it's amazing i think it's a really interesting phenomenon that's just starting and i'm i i'm just exploring the edges of it right now but i'm curious you know to to see what what else we can do in this space what else can biomimicry do to help further that forward or what else can uh, you know even a, a a good designed product help do to to help people reconnect to the ocean. Yeah, you know, and, and to take that one step further, um, specifically in places that are coastal, right? Like, so Boston and Seattle, well, you know, any place that's coastal that's dealing with, with this edge condition of, um, of you know, how the, how the ocean is going to change, 
you know, as sea levels rise, have to deal with, you know, kind of this middle term, medium term planning on sea level rise and, you know, where to put the money, where you put money um, to protect your coastal assets. Um, And one of the kind of uh, mitigation strategies that's starting to become exciting to talk about, right? Like, so it's not too early anymore to still, to really talk about it um, with, with government officials is um, the idea of doing floating like salt marsh islands for uh, storm surge mitigation Mm -hmm. for urban areas. You know, that's certainly something that in Boston has just in the past few months, even like it's been, it's an idea that's been toyed around for a long time. But as um, as a lot of urban environments, including Boston, really start to collect all of the ideas around what we're going to do around climate change, the the natural soft infrastructure is um, a, an incredibly critical component of that. That's a lot less expensive than dealing with you know some major concrete device. And so how we how we reinvest in our future. Um, not only as through agriculture, but also through, you know, uh, rebuilding ecosystems on these coastlines as we interact with with the ocean in a really respectful way, you know, and, and kind of looking at it as, as, I hate to say it because I think that sometimes in my mind, um, rebuilding ecosystems or, or learning how to be back into, na- le- learning how humans can reintegrate themselves back into nature you know it almost has like an Amish feel (laughs) like you know like how can we like really you know use horses for our transportation and like not have any tech gadgets you know um and that's not what I'm saying at all I'm just you know there there are um lots of really exciting ways that we as a society as a people are remembering how nature is useful and how we can interact with nature moving forward without limiting ourselves in terms of innovation and in terms of um, growth, in terms of, you know, moving forward um, in the ways that we value. Yeah, there's a uh, kind of a funny cartoon I once saw, which was like the car of the future. It's self-driving. It runs on biomass. Its waste can be used as fertilizer. You know, and it's just a picture of a horse. <laughs> so. Right. I, right. Like, because that's what the environmental movement has. Like, that's like the stigma of the environmental movement, which is like you want to inhibit growth. And that's a really big problem for most people because they don't believe that progress limits growth, you know. Um, and so I think that what's happening right now, specifically with respect to how biomimicry plays a role in leading the conversation around what's possible because biomimicry comes at it from a perspective of, hey, we're here to innovate. We're here to be, you know, trailblazing <laughs> by not actually innovating anything at all, but by looking at all how all the innovations that have gone left on the shelf in our consciousness that are available to us always through looking at the natural world, right? Like, what's the lowest cost innovation that we can find are the innovations that we, we can observe that we can observe as being successful in specific environments and circumstances that we can mimic based on our own needs, you know? Um, 
Yeah, yeah, it's really exciting. The agriculture piece is exciting because um, it goes to the same point, which is that you're you don't need we don't need to limit um, ourselves as much as we we think we need to to be able to deal with climate change. We just need to change, you know, we just need to change the scale at which we do things um, and the the proximity most of the time. Yeah, so what Green Waves is doing is really awesome. And he's he's like a, I don't know where he's from originally, but I think he's from Maine. You know, he's he's just like a, a lobsterman or a fisherman from Maine who is like... Local boy. Yeah, like he's like, I know how to do this. <laughs> you know, like I'll, he like raised his hand and he was like, you know, this is something that I know how to do. And I think it goes back to the, one of the first conversations that we had, which is that what we need to do about dealing with climate change is not is not like to like innovate or create something new. It's about looking at what we have and, and where we came from. And like, it's, it, for me, it's, it, it, it's much more of a memory than it is something that is created. Um, you know, because, but I think for him, like he just, he followed that pathway, right? He followed what he knew how to do and he's being super success- successful doing it. And not to mention he's got a nonprofit and he does a CSA and he, you know, like he's doing all of the other things that, um, a sustainable biomimetic business owner would do, yeah. right? Which is yeah. building a community around what he's doing so that he's, he's able to thrive and bring other people up in his wake. Well, that's right. He makes me want to, uh, have a small ocean farm. That's really all I... <laughs> All I wanted from it was a small ocean farm and, and eating oysters and having a beer. It just sounded good. I, I think I, one of my favorite things about um, biology was when I took, I took a marine invertebrate zoology class mm. and it's, it, it doesn't get the attention it deserves because most of the organisms on earth live in the ocean. Uh, and, and most of the those organisms uh, are invertebrates, and so the vast majority of o- organisms on Earth are marine invertebrates. So it's the single largest section of organisms that you could have, um, and yet we know almost nothing about them. Um, mm. But um, but they are fascinating to me, and so everything from mollusks to sea slugs to nudibranchs and their amazing colors have you ever seen those photos no nudibranchs now i don't even know what they are they're my favorites they're so cool so nudibranchs are these they're like these brightly colored sea slugs basically um and they they will form symbiotic relationships with algae and different algaes and that's why they have like sometimes that's why they have these crazy colors like purple and orange and green and like neon but they they also do this crazy thing where they'll eat sea anemones and sea anemones um have um nematocysts have stingers they sting you like jellyfish do mm-hmm. and but the but the nudibranchs will eat them they somehow have like a slime or a saliva or something that disables those those harpoon je- like jellyfish defenses. Yeah, and they eat them, but they don't digest those cells that have the stingers. They instead they move them to their back, and then now the sea slug has like a whole array of this armor on its back that will shoot anything that comes near it. Wow. Uh, yeah. It, it's crazy. It's like if you ate a chicken and you grew feathers on your back. Like, 
it just you know, it took those feathers and put them out there. It's just weird. Um, so I love it. There's just crazy stuff like that all happens all the time. Um, wow. And so and and every time now that I I go out in the ocean, I'm now I'm I'm I have I have never been able to catch a photo of a nudibranch. I've only seen one once, and so now I'm on a mission. Uh, so I will update you if I ever catch one and take photos. It is, it is high on my to-do list. <laughs> Wait, can we go back for a second yeah. with with how it, it eats the stinger thing? Yeah, and then it brings it to its. It somehow like brings it to its back. Yeah, and then somehow it fun it allow it like repurposes the stinger so that yeah. it can function again. So like there's there's like a skin structure mm-hmm. on this slug. So it like figures out a way to like puncture its own back so that it can like release these toxic whatever stingy stingy things yep is that what happens like it just it just like totally in well i guess right like how different is that than the the tofu pesto i ate for breakfast that's going to (laughs) become muscle in my body you know it is i mean it's a weird uh it's a weird thing it's a little bit different because it's not going to break it down so it's keeping that highly Mm. complex structure highly complex and like you said it's then using it for the purpose it was designed for. So mm. it's, you know, it's like taking somebody else's weapons and then using them for your own. Um, or maybe like seeds, like, right? Like we don't really digest seeds. They're mm-hmm. just a part of our, 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 the food that we eat and they're designed so that they can fer- be fertilized. Mm-hmm. Right? So like maybe it's analogous to something like that. A little bit. If the seeds wound up like on your scalp. <laughs> And then like sprouted. <laughs> yeah, and it sprouted. <laughs> and then you got energy just by sitting in the sun. Oh my God, Tim, it's going to happen. <laughs> well, it could. I mean, that's, well, and we haven't touched on bioengineering, but that's the kind of stuff that you could start to do. <laughs> we'll uh, have to talk to somebody at Vs. Yeah, they would be all over that at the Vs. Uh, no, that, I mean, that stuff is cool. I I, I, I think it's um, it's crazy. And that's where... Like the sea slugs, and they do the same thing with with those algae. Is they've they've given them a home, and then they get photosynthesis, so that they don't need to eat always. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. there's yeah, there's just crazy stuff like that that happens with these invertebrates. It seems like it happens with the invertebrates a lot, but it, I I know it also happens with some in, invert some vertebrate organisms as well. Um, in 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 our line, like salamanders and other kinds of animals that live in the water tend to have some symbiotic relationships with algae that live in their skin and things like that. But I wanted to talk about um, plants and do plants have consciousness? And mm. and for me, this is this has come up a lot. I, I once gave a talk on, uh, on trees and... And all the new discoveries we've been finding out about trees. And I gave it to um, a group of men at a, you know, like one of those clubs. It's like a, like the old moose club or something. You know, yeah. Where it's like all the old guys go and hang out. So, <laughs> like the VFW? Yeah. Yeah. Well, sort of. But it, yeah, but it's just, just the guys. Like it's, um, so in, in, in Amherst, there's the Amherst Women's Club. And then there's also this all men's club. And I think it's called the Oddfellows Club. And, nice. and I think those exist other places too. So, but the Amherst Women's Club um, at, 
I, I gave a talk there and I gave a talk about biomimicry and it was very well, well, well received and they gave me a mug, which is one of my favorite mugs. And it was a good audience. They had great questions and it was fascinating. Well, one of the people there was from the Odd Fellows, and he said, well, you need to come give a different talk at our club. So I was like, okay, I'll, <laughs> I'll give a talk about trees because I like trees. They're interesting. And I was learning all about the trees of, of the area. And so I gave this talk. And at the end of it, I, I just talked about, you know, all the crazy things that we're learning about about trees. Um, and And everyone at the end was kind of looking at me funny. And they're like, so... Are you saying that that trees can think? And I and I kind of stopped and I was like, I don't I guess. I mean, in some ways they can. So some of the some of the things that I think made them think this were I was sharing how we know that plants have uh they can communicate with each other, right? Mm, yeah. So they, they can communicate through pheromones, like if you have an insect eating a leaf, one tree will give off um, scent signals, basically, that then the other trees will smell, I guess, and then uh, change their chem- their chemistry so that it can um, negatively impact that particular pest. And in fact, different pests have different signals. Right. Uh, so we've learned that. We, we, we've also learned that if you take a there's this plant called the sensitive plant where if you touch its leaf it'll close up its leaves really quick wow uh, if you ever touch and they're, they're they're great fun like you go touch them and they shrink back and then they relax and they fold out their leaves again but um if you <laughs> if you drop them just a little ways just like a couple inches they'll fold up their leaves the first time but if you then wait a little while drop them again and you keep doing this the they'll eventually learn that picking them up and dropping them doesn't hurt them. And they're not tired because they'll come back weeks later and do it again. And the plant remembers and doesn't react. So, so plants can learn different behaviors. And so the more we're starting to find out about how plants interact with fungi and how they have they actually have electrical systems like analogous to nerves. Mm. And so you can take that same sensitive plant and give it anesthesia gases and it'll go to sleep basically and it won't it won't respond the same way that a person wouldn't. Wow. And so there's we don't really know like there there's this whole new field called um, neurobotany, I think. And and it's kind of on the edge of like is this accepted science or not? But for mm. me, but for me, it's this it's this really interesting conversation because I think it's again one of those things where we assume we're the only animal that has consciousness. I mean, for mm. years and years and years, people are like, oh, dogs and cats don't feel pain. It's like, give me a break. Right. Everybody, <laughs> like animals don't feel pain. Like, anybody who has a pet knows they feel pain. Right. And then it's like, well, that's that's true, but cows don't. It's like cows, of course, cows do. <laughs> Well, okay, but fish oh, yeah. fish really don't feel pain. Are you kidding me? Of course fish feel pain. Well, okay, that's fine, but crabs crabs don't feel pain. They're 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 invertebrates that's not of course they do. Yeah. Uh, you know, who's who's conscious? Like people are the only conscious. Well, dolphins are self conscious, whales are self conscious. They're finding out that certain birds we know are self conscious, um, have this sort of self awareness. Um, and it's just this cascading breakdown of our own self-centeredness oh yeah yeah 
plants, I think it's valid that plants have a certain form of consciousness. And so, mm. um, so I think it's an interesting field and why I think it's particularly adept or, 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 or apt right now is there's a ton of exploration, especially in Seattle around, um, artificial intelligence, around machine learning and around consciousness and uh. And, and around how do we understand our own consciousness as well as how do we make the computer programs that we use conscious or, or, or smart or intelligent. And my, my whole uh, take on this is that um, looking at intelligence, just creating a human intelligence is maybe not the best way to approach technology and artificial intelligence that maybe we should be looking at plant intelligence and insect intelligence and jellyfish mm -hmm. intelligence and trying to understand what do they do really well how do they filter how do they sort how do they understand the world so that the technologies that we build they're not going to be human we're not trying to make a human in every interface um, but maybe it's an ecosystem and maybe mm -hmm. it's a range of different kinds of intelligence that are out there. And so mm -hmm. that's one of the things that I'm um, really curious about how biomimicry and how learning about the intelligence of these different organisms can help inspire and, and actually give structure to the emerging artificial intelligence uh, fields that are out there. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I, um, I have some natural resistance to that topic because it's like, for me, um, there is no separation between humanity and nature, right? So like right. our consciousness is, is in the billboards we create in the trees that we're surrounded by in the pavement that we put down right like in the in the cell phones that we've created right like the consciousness is an energy vibration right so like it goes without saying that everything in nature has a consciousness and I think that um in my lifetime in our lifetimes like um what I what I my goal in doing this work is to and I don't want to harp on it being a negative but to raise humanity's consciousness in whatever way I can to the reality that our natural world is, um, is the same as us in the same way that we abolished slavery because we realized that black people were not different types of people right, or less valuable, right? Mm -hmm. Like, which is how we value nature as a society right now, which is less valuable than humanity mm -hmm. right so like it's this genocide <laughs> on nature that we've we, that we've created this paradigm um that it's, yeah it's true keep going sorry <laughs> no i know i just that's that's right because like i i swim in the worlds of like environmentalists and like people who do a lot of meditation and like people who thrive in communities and like you know kind of like the hippie alternative people right like that's where I feel comfortable and even in those spaces it's like people don't recycle people don't know how to compost people you know like and some of that is a function of being in New England and maybe a little bit less progressive than other places but but still it's like 
um, this pervasive idea that humanity is um, is superior, right, or separate, right? Like this, the ego, like it's a it's a separation from um, the place that we're in, the things that we've created, um, that is causing so much destruction. And um, and and as soon as we can start to point to concrete examples, which is why biomimicry is so important, is because it's funded in, it's founded in science, which most people can get behind. Um, but as soon as we can point to concrete examples of the ways in which we are not separate from nature, right, um, I think that we can start to, to, to raise that awareness and that consciousness around how humanity um, the level with which humanity should be operating on this planet or needs to be operating on this planet for us to move forward. It is good, and it's a subtle, um, nuanced perspective that I find I keep coming back to, which I totally agree, that we are nature. And then there's kind of a funny thing that you have to do is you have to then see all of the objects around us as natural objects. So you have to, like the cell phone or the computer or the coffee mug, those are natural objects. They've, you know, they're part of the natural world. Now, they might not be objects that are sustainable or or fit well within the larger ecosystem, and yet, but they're there. And so I think that's that's one of the things that that I've strived to do in a lot of the work that I've done is to do just that is to remind people that the objects that we have, the objects that we make are natural objects and we're not separated from the natural world. But how can we make those objects be more part of the world? Right. Yeah. Or, I mean, just really work on how we can create a circular economy that doesn't have human labor problems or like really destructive environmental Mm -hmm. situations? How can we create products that can be disassembled and reused, right? Like, because a cell phone is not a bad thing, right? Like it it allows us to have so much freedom in our Mm -hmm. lives. Um, But, but we have to, we can't stop there, right? Like it's not, it's not a win just to invent a beautiful cell phone. Right. I want my computer to eat my cell phone and then put it on its back. Right? Like, I want to be able to do that. Why not? It should be able to do that. That'd be awesome. Listen, you need to talk to some people over there at Apple. (laughs) iPhone 21 coming at you. I can just see the postcards coming out right now. (laughs) Good. Good. So, So what did we learn today? Oh, my God, Tim. You are a wealth of knowledge. That's what I learned today. I, I learned that your diet is much healthier than my diet. <laughs> I also learned that you can go take a natural history class locally, and that's a great way to get tuned in, right? Like, you don't just have to, like, struggle through reading old books. <laughs> that's good. Yeah, for sure. I, I learned that um, if, you, if you're going to listen to more of these po- podcasts, that next week you can listen to a book review. <laughs> yep. Um, and also that VFWs might perhaps be a really hotbed, a really great hotbed for biomimicry talks. <laughs> yeah, of course they are. <laughs> All right. I think that does it for us this week. <laughs> Bye.
Awesome. Well, good talking to you, Tim. Yes, thank you, Amelia. Yeah. Okay. All right. Are we signing off now? I, I guess so. That'll be the end. We'll say the end or something. <laughs> or, or this will be the end. I don't know. We'll figure it out. <laughs>